is absolutely delightful to see you here this morning. Um, just God bless you. What an amazing time we get to be a part of. And for those of you who are watching online, we are so glad that you are joining us and that you're with us this morning. My text this morning is from Mark chapter 12. I'm going to read reading verses 41 through 44. This is a familiar story, but I think that the way I'm going to present it to you this morning might be a little unfamiliar because I believe the Lord has given me some insight into this passage that looks at it from a little bit of a different perspective. You guys are going to be, again, familiar with this story. You know this lady. You know her situation. So let's read about it. And I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Bible. Mark chapter 12, verse 41. And he, referring to Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the multitude were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. And calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. So in the context of this particular passage, in ancient Israelite history, this woman would have been completely dependent on her husband for everything. She would have had no outside employment from her home. Those women were few and far between. She would have been at the mercy of her husband, and then if something happened to him, at her community for her provision. There are four things that we know about this lady, four significant facts that are given to us about who she is. Fact number one, we know who she had been. She had been a wife. We know, number two, what she lost. She lost her husband, and now she is a widow. Third important fact that we know about her, we know what she has left. She has two copper coins. And the fourth thing, we know what she did with it. I want us this morning, in the few moments that we have together, I want us to look at these four facts about this woman, and I want us to consider them one by one. The first fact, this woman had been a wife. She had been cared for, protected, provided, and given a position by her husband. In that ancient culture, again, she would not have been expected to work or really even able to work outside the home. So she had to depend on her husband for provision, and he would have willingly, gladly provided for her, taking care of her financially, not just for the present moment, but for the days ahead. So she would have had provision. The second thing that she would have had is protection. He would have stood between her and everyone who would want to attack her. He would have stood between her and anyone who wanted to deceive, manipulate, or take advantage of her. So she would have known protection. She would have known provision. But also, being married, being a wife, would have granted her position, a position of honor, a position of security. It would have offered her stability. So this provision, 
position, and protection were all very important. But before you think that I'm going to make this a sermon about a woman who's without a husband, let me put it in a context where we can all live and identify. Because you see, this woman's story isn't just her story, it's our story. This woman knew what it was like to have a life that was all together. She knew what it was like to be held in arms stronger than her own. She knew what it was like to be able to lean on and depend on another human being to help her through the stuff of life. She knew what it was like to have someone to talk to when there was a problem or a circumstance or a situation. She knew what it was like to have finished her four-year bachelor's degree, to have landed a job in a company that would have allowed her to move up. She knew what it was like to be in a situation to where there was going to be an annual bonus and a great retirement plan. She knew what it was like to be a part of a company that was going to allow her to move up the ladder of corporate America until she got to the top and that position was wide open for him or for her. She knew what it was like to have all of that to look forward to. Bringing it back to the context of this little lady, she knew what it was like to dream dreams about the future. She and her husband had probably talked about the names they were going to give their children. They had looked forward to growing old together and doing life together. But something happened. A storm blew into her life with such ferocious winds that by the time that storm was over, it had completely rearranged the landscape of her life. If you've never been through a storm like that, keep breathing in and keep breathing out because life will eventually throw something like that at you. You'll go to bed one night and everything will be in order and organized and you'll have a sense of well-being and security and you get up the next morning and it will all be ripped right out from under your feet. And you'll be left in a state of disorientation, not knowing what's coming next. This storm changed the landscape of her life. She went to bed a wife. She woke up a widow. He went to bed a CEO of a major business and woke up in need of unemployment. In a moment, in an instant, everything can change. We are all too well aware of that in this moment in which we live, in this culture of which we are a part. We know who she had been. We know what she lost. She lost her husband, and she became a widow. She's identified now by the worst thing that ever happened to her. We're not given a name. We're not told that her name was Esther or Mary or Hulda. She's not given a name. She's given a title, the title of widow, so that now we can have an idea of what she's been through and what she's lost. How would you like to be identified by the worst thing that you've ever done or by the worst thing that ever happened to you? Oh, he's the one who's been divorced. She's the one who spent time in jail. He's the one who's had a problem with addiction. Oh, she has gone through depression and can't even get out of bed. Oh, they are now bankrupt. They are a failure. This woman 
did not ask for this title. She didn't want it. But yet it was hers nonetheless. But she joins ranks with a list of women in the Old Testament and the New that are called widows. The first one is 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 18 through 24. She's called the widow at Zarephath. And when we meet her, she's about to bake a little cake of bread, and she and her son are going to eat it and die because there's a famine in the land and there's no hope for more flour. The other widow, we meet her in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Her husband was one of the men that were a part of the school of the prophets, and he suddenly unexpectedly dies, leaving she and her two sons to deal with bill collectors. And now these bill collectors are threatening to take away her sons for payment. And all she has left is a little bit of oil in a jar in her kitchen. What about Naomi and Ruth? We know their names, but these women also join the ranks of women, of women who have lost their husbands. Naomi has lost not only her husband, but both of her sons. Ruth has lost her husband. And they go back to Bethlehem, and the only option they have is for Ruth to now go and glean the fields, leaning on the good mercies of Boaz. Something that all these women had in common is that they had lost their source of provision. You don't have to be a woman to lose your source of provision. You don't have to be a widow to lose your position, to lose your security. Because it can happen to any of us at any time. These individuals that I listed off for you, the widows in particular, they all lost their source of provision. Let me share with you what the Old, Old Testament says about widows. In Exodus chapter 22, we're told that widows are to be cared for and not mistreated. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, the priests are to bless the widows and be a blessing to them. In Zechariah chapter 7 verse 10, widows are not to be oppressed, not by the priest, not by the, by the princes, not by anyone. In Isaiah chapter 1 verse 7, we are to plead in prayer the cause of the widow. Both Ezekiel and Isaiah Declare loudly and boldly that the mistreatment of a widow will get you into trouble with God. And judgment will certainly come on those who have been anything but kind to these individuals. If you'll allow me to employ what I call a midrash. And a midrash is simply a rabbinic term that says we can read between the lines. Let me read between the lines for just a moment and bring this lady's situation to a place where we all live. The people that she should have been able to trust. Friends, people she went to church with, men that he played golf with, individuals that had been at your supper table and had sipped on iced tea with you and had dreamed dreams for a future with you. These people that she should have trusted, they were the devouring lot that were exploiting her and wanting to take advantage of her. Can I tell you that there's probably not a person in this room that doesn't know what it's like to be exploited or taken advantage of by someone that you trust. If you breathe in and out long enough, 
It will happen. Maybe this woman, maybe this man looked to the government for help. They'd paid taxes and had worked and paid into the system for decades, and now it was their turn. They needed the system, but they were denied help. They filled out every form. They filled out forms until they thought their hand was going to fall off. They made phone call after phone call after phone call. They jumped through hoop after hoop, only to get an answering machine an electronic answering system, and no one to help them. This is a truth. There is a lady that's a part of our congregation. If I were to call her name out loud, you would know her. This woman lost her job, and she called over 350 times. That's when she started counting. That fails to take into account how many times that she called before she actually started, call, actually started counting the phone calls. She counted 350 times that she called the unemployment office only to get an automated response. And week after week, now month after month, no response. The very ones that should have helped her have now let her down and she just gives up. What about some religious systems? They'll tell you that you can have your best life right now. I just have to say this. If this is my best life now, seriously, you've got to be kidding me. This life is good, and I love this life, but the best is yet to come. For the follower of Jesus Christ, this life is filled with joy and filled with privilege, but there's coming a day when we will step out of time and into eternity, and then I will have my best life. According to the book of Hebrews, I'm looking for a city whose builder and maker is God, and there is no city on this planet that will substitute for that. Church, it's time that we get a grip with regard to the truth and the reality of Scripture. In this world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, because Jesus has overcome the world. And there will come a time when he will call us home, and we will step out of this world into one where we will have our best life. But there are some religious systems that would like to tell us that we can have our best life now and for your check of X number of dollars, it can start today. I love what Pastor Des used to say. He said, if these folks really believed that, they'd be writing me a check. Think about it. You'll catch on by lunchtime. Write that faith check now and you can have your best life until there's no money left. Well, then put the right words together and confess the right words in the right sequence until you have no words left, no voice, and you fall silent. What about friends and family, the people who are supposed to be there for you when no one else is? What happens when they start telling you, pick yourself up, get over this. Everybody goes through losses. Everybody hurts. Get over yourself. But grief pins you to the floor, and you just can't move, and you stop trying. This little lady could have been there. 
She could have gone through all of this. And I know if I had the opportunity to speak with many of you one-on-one, you could share at least one of these that you yourself have had to walk through. She lost her husband. But what have you lost? Believe it or not, I've lost some arguments. Not many, but there are a few. I've lost some fights. Now in my late 50s, I've lost my youth. I've lost jobs. I've lost friends. I've lost family. I've lost homes, love, money, heart, trust in certain people and systems. Things that once defined me and provided some sense of identity or belonging and even hope for the future. We have all lost something. Something that's common to all of us who are members of sin-broken humanity is that we all have lost something or someone that defined us, provided security, gave us a sense of belonging. I mean, think back. When Adam and Eve sinned, they lost paradise. They lost their relationship with God. They lost their relationship with each other. They lost their relationship with themselves and even with nature itself. Because of the sin-sick situation, of which we are a part, we've all lost something. Deeply written on the DNA of our soul is a desire to just go home, to go back to that place like Eden, to regain what we've lost. But all of our human attempts to go back just add to the grief of our sin-sick souls. We've all lost something. We all are trying to get something back. This woman represents us all. We know what it's like to have been something, have a storm blow into our life, rearrange the landscape of us, and to become something that we never wanted to be. We're all in a state of grief because of loss. We all bear the intense pain and weight of the loss of dignity, freedom, provision, security, power. All the things that we lost in Eden. We scratch and we claw at every little thing, trying to get something back of what we were in the early dawn of time. Only to intensify the loss and turn up the volume of the pain. Who she was, what she lost... The third one, what she had left. Two copper coins. Some translations will say that it's a mite. We know, or at least I know from doing a Bible encyclopedia search, that those two copper coins were worth 164th of a denarii. A denarii was considered to be the pay of a day's labor. If the typical pay in this country, and according to Google.com, it is, the typical pay by hour in this country is $20 an hour. You work an eight-hour shift, that's 160 pre-taxed dollars. One-sixty-fourth of that is $2.50. That's my math. That's how I came up with that amount. This little woman had $2.50 left. What can you buy with $2.50, you can't pay rent, can't buy groceries. You can't buy enough gas to get you to work and back if you have a job. You can't pay for school tuition. You can't buy hope for dreams 
and plan for the future. With $2.50, you may be able to go to a QT and buy a bag of chips and a bottle of water if you choose the cheap water. Or you can go to McDonald's and get a burger and a soda, but not fries. You get the idea. $2.50 is not going to buy her lunch, much less take care of her for the remainder of her life. You've got to ask yourself the question, what is she going to do with $2.50? She has a choice. She's either going to grab it and hang on to it, or she's going to let it go. But this little lady joins a list with some others. Remember the widow at Zarephath? All she has is a handful of flour, enough to make a small cake for herself and her son, then they're going to eat it and then they're going to die because they're in the middle of a famine and that's all that there is left. But the prophet of God comes into town and he says to her, make me a cake first. And she says, yes, sir, at the word of the Lord. She gives what little she has and her handful of flour never runs out. We're not told that she was given buckets of flour from heaven. I think that every day she went in there and she had a handful of flour. She had what she needed for the moment and for the day. And for two years, that handful of flour fed that woman, fed her son, and fed the prophet Elijah. Then there's the other widow. Her husband had been among those who were part of the school of the prophets. And he suddenly, unexpectedly dies, and she's left now a single mom, a widow with two sons. And Elisha comes into town, and of course she meets Elisha, and she unloads on him. She tells him everything. They're going to take my sons away. And Elisha, it's almost like he doesn't even hear what she's saying. Elisha doesn't ask her the obvious question, how much do you need? That's not the question he asks. The question he asks is this, what do you have? God is not going to come into your home and ask you for what you don't have. He's asking us not for what we don't have. He's asking us for what we do have. If you're not a figure skater, he's probably not going to ask you to enter into the Olympics figure skating section. So many times we act like God is going to ask us for what we don't have. So even before we know what he's asking of us, we tend to say, I don't have anything that's of use to the Lord, and we cop out. And we hang on to our $2.50 because we can't think that God could do anything with our little handful of flour. Elisha asked this woman, what do you have? And she says, seriously? Um, I've got just a little bit of oil. And Elijah says, great, go and borrow vessels from all of your neighbors. And when she does, then Elisha says, start pouring into them. And when she does, the oil doesn't run out. 
She's able to sell the oil, pay off the bill collectors, and have enough for she and her sons to live on for that season. Church, do you hear the truth of this? He may not give you a 4,000 square foot mansion. If he does, hallelujah, invite me over. But he will make sure that your needs are met. We have lost sight of the truth of the gospel. God does not provide for our indulgences. He provides for our needs. And we have confused the two with each other. Thank God for prosperity. Thank God for the men and the women that he has blessed financially, that he has blessed with material possessions. But thank God for the men and the women who give out of what they don't have instead of an abundance. Because seriously, that's most of the time what ministry is built on. And thank God for it. Everybody has their part. Everybody has something that they can give to the Lord. It's not too insignificant. I think of the rich young ruler. He had so much that when Jesus asked him for all that he had, he walked away the most impoverished man on the planet. This woman gave all she had, and she was one of the wealthiest people on the planet because of it, because she wasn't looking for the wealth of this world. She found the wealth of the invisible kingdom of God. She's not the only one. The widow that had a handful of flour, the woman that had just a little bit of oil in a jar. In John chapter 6, people have been listening to Jesus teach all day long, and now it's time for lunch. There are 5,000 men, not counting the women and the children. A conservative estimate, I think, would be about 12,000 people total in that place listening to Jesus that day. And out of all that number of people, the only one who brought lunch was a little boy. He had two fish and five loaves of bread. And the disciples bring his little lunch to the Lord because he had to give that lunch up. Now, I know little boys. I have two grown nephews. And they're not going to give their lunch up easily. But this little boy gave up his lunch to the disciples. And the disciples brought it to Jesus. And they treated what he gave with triviality. Oh, this is not much. It's not enough. And Jesus said, oh, yes, it is. And that day, that multitude was fed on the lunch of a little boy with 12 baskets of food left over. She gave all she had as she caught the attention of Jesus. When Peter and James are going into the gate beautiful, they see a man who'd been sitting there for all of his life, this could not have been the first time that they ever saw this man sitting at the gate. But this time when they saw him begging for alms, they had no money. And they even said it, silver and gold have I none. But what I do have, I give to you in Jesus' name. Get up and walk. You don't need money to pray for the sick. You don't need a ton of material wealth to get on your face before God and begin to pray for the healing of this nation. 
You don't need all the trappings and all the externals to be what God has called you to be. If you need it, he'll provide it. So quit using, I don't have this or that as your excuse. And you be obedient to the Lord. What she did was profound. We know who she had been. We know what she lost. We know what she had left. And her story is our story. She gave all she had. She didn't have a little stash of money in the cookie jar in her kitchen. If she had, I think she would have given that too. This $2.50 is all that she had and all that she was going to have to her immediate knowledge. This woman's story, it really is our story. She gave all she had and she withheld nothing. At the close of the 19th century and the opening of the 20th century, we had a movement that was known in this nation and eventually around the world as the Pentecostal movement. Some people will refer to it as the Azusa Street outpouring. But here's what happened. People came together and they began to exalt the name of Jesus and the Holy Spirit came upon them and filled them and they began to exhibit the gifts of the Holy Spirit and spoke in other tongues. When the people of this first Pentecostal outpouring of the late 19th, early 20th century, they believed that this outpouring of the Holy Spirit on their lives was an indication that they were supposed to go to the mission field because they could not separate the Pentecostal experience from the mission call. How far we have wandered and drifted from that original intent. There were a group of people and they called themselves, or they were eventually called, the missionaries of the one-way ticket. Here's what they did. Born again, filled with the Holy Spirit, the evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in their life, they sold all that they had, put it in a coffin, and bought a one-way ticket to the mission field. Because where they went is where they would die. And thereby, the missionaries of the one-way ticket. One particular man by the name of Peter Milna. Peter Milna had an incredible encounter with the Lord and was baptized in the Holy Spirit. He packed all his belongings in a coffin and he went to a place called New Hebrides. Now, New Hebrides was occupied by people who had, or who were at that time, cannibals. And all the missionaries for the last 50 years that had gone to New Hebrides had been killed early upon their arrival. But this didn't stop Peter Milna because he knew that God had called him and he was all in for the kingdom of God. He wasn't going to play safe Christianity. He wasn't going to play half-hearted commitment to the Lord Jesus. He was all in for the things of God's kingdom. This man went to New Hebrides and for 50 years preached the gospel among those people and many of them accepted Christ to the point that when he died, they wrote on his tombstone, when he came, there was no light. And when he left, there was no darkness. We have a dilemma in the church of the 21st century. It's greater than any plague, seen or unseen. The dilemma 
of our culture and our time is the dilemma of half-hearted Christianity. We have just enough Jesus to bypass hell, but not enough Jesus to transform our hearts. We have just enough Christianity to get Jesus to fix our problems, but not enough to honestly, authentically call him the Lord of our life. I've actually had people say this to me. I would share Christ with them, and their response to me would be something like this, Oh, I've tried Christianity. I tried Jesus. And if I were to probe and ask them enough questions, this is what I find. By trying Jesus, they wanted Jesus to fix their problems, but they did not want him to govern and rule their lives. They wanted him to save them, but they did not want his lordship at work in their life. I dare not stay there too long because that's a message all by itself. We want the presence of God. We want the goosebumps and the warm fuzzies and the feel-goods and the healings and the deliverances. And I want all of that. But what we don't want is the government of our God taking the reins of our life and declaring that we are his to lead as he commands. This woman went all in. She didn't hold anything back from the Lord. The reason that she went all in is the only reason any of us ever go all in. This woman could give him everything because she realized he was all she needed. We can let go of things when we come to the realization, when we come to the understanding that Jesus is all I need. He provides. He protects. He puts in the right position. He gives respect. He gives authority. I can give all I have and be all in because he really is all I need. I wonder if Isaac Watts had this in mind when he wrote this beautiful hymn. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, love so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. The most miserable people on the face of the earth, in my opinion, are those individuals who are half in and not all in. They're miserable and they're hard to be around. Joy and peace elude them. The question that I have for you this morning from this little lady's story is simply this. Are you all in?
It's easy to hold back some little piece of your heart. Maybe it's not even a good thing. Maybe it's bitterness, anger, unforgiveness, resentment, hatred. Maybe it's something that you keep just for yourself. Until Jesus is the Lord of all the kingdoms of your heart, then he's not really Lord at all of your heart. If you are with me this morning and you're saying, Jesus, I surrender all to you. I'm all in, and I'm withholding nothing. Would you stand with me? Lord Jesus, you see us standing in the sanctuary, and you see the men and women at home who are saying, me, Lord, I'm standing too. Here we are, Jesus. We are all in, and we withhold nothing from you today. We count our richest gain but loss that we might win our relationship with you. We are yours to command as you will. We're all in, and we're not turning back. In Jesus' name, amen.